optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I ask you a personal question? Now we're the same appropriate time. What if I I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is invariably Athletic Greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the four-hour body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, and much more. I usually take it once or twice a day just to make sure I've covered my bases if I miss anything I'm not aware of. Of course, I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with. That's the basis. But Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com slash TFS. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash TFS, as in Tim Ferriss show. athleticgreens.com slash TFS. TFS. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, my clever little monkeys. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show, where I interview world-class performers ranging from billionaire investors to chess prodigies and everything in between to try to dissect how they do what they do, the tools, the tricks, the resources that you can use. And in this episode, I'm having a chat with my friend Peter Diamandis. Dr. Peter Diamandis has been named one of the world's 50 greatest leaders by Fortune magazine. He has made a career out of doing the seemingly impossible, and he is an expert in thinking big, huge, beyond anything you could imagine. And this entire episode is dedicated to helping you do exactly that. So without further ado, please meet Peter Diamandis. Peter, welcome to the show. Tim, great to be here. The guest who was so nice, we had to do it twice. We, of course, (laughs) had you on with Tony Robbins, which was great fun, and I'm thrilled to have you back. 
And for those who perhaps didn't catch part one, I'd love to give them a little bit of context on who you are because there are very few people I would actually put in the category of visionary because it's a very <laughs> overused term, but it's so appropriate for you. You've built something along the lines or helped build 15 or so companies at this point, but I'd love if you could give people a little bit of context uh, and certainly mention XPRIZE, Planetary Resources, and HLI. Yeah, uh, sure. My my pleasure, and thank you for having me back. I, I do appreciate it. Uh, I mean, fundamentally, I'm a nine-year-old kid who's working on making my dreams come true. Um, I have started, as you said, about uh, last count is 17 companies, uh, most of them in the space technology space arena. Uh, but of late, it's been about solving the world's grand challenges. So I'm a medical doctor by training, a molecular biologist, an aerospace engineer, uh, since the age of nine, wanted to fly into space. Um, uh, started two universities, the International Space University, most recently, and and very proudly, Singularity University uh, in Mountain View in Silicon Valley that teaches graduates and executives around the world about exponential technologies. Um, in the mid '90s, uh, frustrated by NASA not taking me and my friends to space, I decided to fund. Uh, raise money for a $10 million prize. Didn't know who was going to put up the $10 million, so I called it the X Prize uh, and uh, to be replaced by the name. Eventually, the Ansaris put up the money. Ansari family called it the Ansari X Prize. But uh, uh, that $10 million prize had 26 teams around the, well, around the world who spent $100 million building spaceships to try and win it. Uh, from there, I started a company called Zero-G that does weightless parabolic flights. We've flown 15,000 people, including Stephen Hawking, into Zero-G. Uh, a company called Space Adventures takes people to the space station privately. And then uh, most recently in the space arena, a company called Planetary Resources, backed by a group of a dozen billionaires, folks like Larry Page, Eric Schmidt, Mark Andreessen, Richard Branson. Uh, and this is a company that is – as much as it's science fiction, I am absolutely positively sure it's going to be uh, successful and transformative. This is a company that's identifying the asteroids that come close to Earth without hitting us and that are worth the most in terms of resources, fuel and metals. And it's the resource low-hanging fruit of the solar system. So can we go out there and prospect them? And finally, I'll just mention human longevity, which started only a year ago, but it's, uh, it's skyrocketing. Uh, I co-founded it with Craig Venter and Bob Hariri, and we are building the largest genome sequencing facility on the planet. We're going to be sequencing millions of genomes and then mining that genomes for data along with stem cell science. And our, our mission is to add an extra 30 or 40 healthy years onto everybody's life. So, <laughs> so no, I'm only laughing because uh, the I we're here to talk about being bold and thinking big. And I'm so excited to dive into it. But I have to point out that you make me feel like I have to try and should try a thousand times harder. And that's a good <laughs> thing. And I sometimes have readers approach me and uh, they I, I worry about them suffering from the sort of hero with clay feet problem where they meet me and they're like, wow, that guy's actually really disorganized. Because I feel it's like sometimes you have a pet cat and it stares at the corner for like five hours. And if they actually watched me for most of the day, I think it would look very similar. But when I look at what you've accomplished, uh, it reminds me of a few things uh, that are very timely. So one well, is... I, I have to say, Tim, before that, I mean, 
you only work four hours a week. I mean, if you <laughs> other other thirty six hours a week, you'd be fine. That's true. That's true. I know. I got. I could put a little more effort into it. But the 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 first is I spent some time at Teal Capital recently. Uh, of course, founded by Peter Thiel. And uh, it, at least at one point, the tagline for, I think it was Founders Fund, was uh, we wanted flying cars. Instead, we got 140 characters. And yeah. I want to come back to that. Uh, but I was also hiking recently with a friend of mine named Brian Johnson, who did very well as the founder of Braintree. A, a dear friend of mine as well. He, he's a great guy. Yeah. And he's started something called the OS Fund. So the, the trying to improve the the fundamental operating systems of of life and uh, life as we know it on the planet. And we were hiking and uh, I was asking him what my resolution should be potentially for 2015. You know, if, if he were in my shoes, what would he be thinking about? And he responded with, what can you do that would be remembered 200, 300 years from now? And mm-hmm. really trying to shift the, the magnitude of of my aspirations and thinking. And so I was, I was, I was hoping perhaps you could start with the, the idea of exponential just to revisit that because it's something that people tend to use the wrong way or they use it very flippantly. They're like, Oh my God, it's, you know, exponentially better than blah, blah, blah. But they don't really have a grasp on what that means. Um, so I was hoping perhaps you could just give people just a basic primer or some examples of ex- what exponential really means. Yeah, uh, happily. And, um, and I have a, after that, I'd like to come back to the to the notion of being remembered in 200 and 300 years. So uh, first of all, through, uh, people need to understand that we are fundamentally local and linear thinkers. Uh, we evolved in a world as humans hundreds of thousands, millions of years ago that was local and linear. Everything that affected you was within a day's walk. It was a very local existence. If something happened on the other side of the planet, you knew nothing about it. And things were linear in that the life of your great-grandparents, your parents, you, your kids, their kids, nothing changed generation to generation, millennium to millennium. You know, It was pretty much constant. Today, the world is anything but that, right? Today, the world is global and exponential. And what I mean by exponential here is fundamentally a simple doubling. If we look at an exponential, it would look like 1, 2, 4, 8, 16, 32. When, when your progress is able to double year on year on year and – the example I give, I'll give two examples. If I asked you to take 30 linear steps and all of us are linear thinkers, you go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, you know, in 30 steps, you're across the street, you're 30 meters away. If I said, where would you be if you took 30 exponentials, 30 doublings? Unless you've got it memorized, very few realize that you'll be a billion meters away. You know, uh, if you if you double something 10 times, it's a thousand times bigger. If you double it, 20 times, it's a million times bigger. If you double it 30 times, it's a billion times bigger. And that disconnect between I'll be 30 meters away across the street or I've been orbiting the planet 26 times, a billion meters, is huge. You know, if I said to you, Tim, uh, take a guess. If you took a piece of paper and you folded it, um, you know, it's now twice as thick, and you folded that again, it's now four times as thick. If you folded that, if you were able to fold that piece of paper 50 times, how thick would that piece of paper be? <laughs> well, I've been primed <laughs> to exaggerate well, to the moon. I would say. Well, it's actually all the sun. So uh, not two hundred. Not, not even close. Not even close. Yeah, not not two hundred forty thousand miles to the moon, but ninety three million miles to to the sun. Extraordinary. That's amazing. 
And when, when you talk about, uh, of course, uh, your last book, um, Abundance, and it's certainly having spent time at, at Singularity, you, myself, uh, at NASA Ames, uh, when we talk about exponential, it's, it's often paired to different technologies. So robotics, synthetic biology, AI. Yeah. Um, so, so all of this is underpinned by the increase of computational power, what is typically known as Moore's Law. So this guy, Gordon Moore, starts Intel. Um, in the uh, in the late 50s, and in 1964, uh, he writes a paper and he says, you know, at, at Intel, we've been noticing that the number of transistors on an integrated circuit has been roughly doubling for the same cost every 18 months. And he goes, this is likely to continue, and that became known as Moore's law. And for the last 50 years, it's held pretty constant. So every time you go to Best Buy, you know. Every 18 months or so, the computer you buy has got twice as much processing power as you did for a thousand bucks, you know, 18 months earlier. And this is extraordinary. And if you look at a computer, I happen to have these numbers memorized that you had in, in 2010, 2011, way back then, right? Uh, that computer was calculating at 100 billion calculations per second more computational power than the U.S. government had in the 60s and 70s. In 2023, uh, some you know, seven, eight years from now, the total computational power of your $1,000 computer you can go to Best Buy and purchase if they're still around uh, is now calculating at 10 to the 16th cycles per second, one followed by you know, 16 zeros, which is just a number unless you go speak to someone who studies the brain and they tell you that's the rate at which your brain and my brain does pattern recognition, right? So what's it like when you buy a $1,000 computer that now thinks at the rate of a human mind, but it doesn't stop there, right? Because 25 years later, the average $1,000 computer is now thinking at the rate of the entire human race. Now it becomes really interesting. <laughs> right. Then we get to the, the, the fears that, of course, are getting a lot of play right now of the rise of the machines and AI yeah. and so forth. Now, for, for someone, even a, even someone who's in the center at least, of course, the people in Silicon Valley would like to think the center of the universe <laughs> from the standpoint of of tech development and so on. Uh, I'm very comfortable with angel investing and early stage startups. But even even I get somewhat uh, anxious about my lack of understanding related to these technologies, robotics. I don't have a CS degree, don't have a synthetic biological background of any type. Um, how how does how can someone who is not a technologist play this game or think about changing their thinking and does it does it involve these technologies or is it is it entirely separate from that? Great great question. So I'm always asked the question over and over again. Listen, if I'm not a technologist, can I get involved in in all the stuff you're speaking about in abundance and bold? And the answer is yes. The answer is without question yes. So first of all, I should just say riding on top of Moore's Law, on top of these faster and faster computers, is a whole set of what are either called exponential technologies or accelerating technologies. And these things include like uh, cloud computing, mm -hmm. sensors and networks, 3D printing, right, additive manufacturing, synthetic biology, robotics, artificial intelligence. And these are the technologies we teach at Singularity University if you come as a graduate student or as an executive and we have amazing programs. It's just uh, singularityu.org if you want to learn more. But you know, the fact of the matter is I don't care if you're an artist, uh, if you're a writer, if you're someone who never you know, went to college. 
what's the single most important attribute that you need to tap into these technologies is passion and curiosity. Um, what I want to remind everybody is we're in a hyper-connected world. And in this hyper-connected world, there are a lot of really smart geeks out there who are the world's expert in machine learning and artificial intelligence and robotics. And some of them absolutely wish they had your skills. They wish they were great writers. They wish they could raise money. They wish they were good marketers. They wish they had a good business idea. They wish all kinds of things. And so what I realized, and I write about this actually in the first part, bold is in three parts, and part one's about exponential technologies. I write about the concept that you can crowdsource, that if you have a passion or an idea or come up with a really cool idea, you can go to the crowd and you can find someone who has the expertise that you need to team up with to make your idea happen. And I, I write about uh, a number of examples. I won't go into them in, in detail now. But where someone who had an idea and no skills was able to team up with the people who did have the skills and get access to and build a business. So, so let's let's think of it uh, just to, to sort of work in parallel Thinking of technology, there are different types of technologies. If we think of or define technology as just a, a tool used to solve a problem, you know, so that could be a stick that a chimpanzee uses on an anthill, uh, but it could also be better questions that we ask ourselves. And so the, the question that uh, Brian asked me, for instance, uh, you know, what can you do? What could you do to be remembered in two, three hundred years? And not 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 for vanity purposes, but just as a as a, as a helpful question to ask. Or uh, Peter Thiel, who is also on this uh, on this podcast. Uh, for those uh, who may not be familiar, he was co-founder of PayPal and then first outside investor into Facebook. He asked, you know, uh, why can't you accomplish your ten year goal in six months? Or like, how would you try to do it in six months? What are some questions that you ask that many other people do not ask? Yeah, so one of the questions is really, uh, is there a grand challenge or a billion person problem that you can focus on? Uh, I am uh, I am on a tear right now to try and get entrepreneurs to stop working on another photo sharing app or something that's just, you know, literally uh, an app and say, hey, what are you most passionate about? And can you go and solve one of the grand challenges? And I remind people that, you know, from my mindset, the best way to become a billionaire is help a billion people. Um, and that in this hyper-connected world right now, uh, we're going to be having three to five billion new people coming online. So one of the questions is, what do they need? Mm-hmm. Right, so let's let me back up a second. 2010, we had just over 1.8 billion people connected on the internet. Today, it's somewhere between two and a half, 2.8 billion. By 2020, the low estimate is five billion connected online. If you go and you look at the projects that Mark Zuckerberg has, that Larry Page has at, at Google, uh, some of the recent announcements that Elon's had, there are at least three separate competing concepts for deploying drones, balloons, satellites that would give a megabit connection to every human on the planet. So let's think about that, right? Uh, Three to five billion new consumers are coming online in the next six years. Holy cow. That's extraordinary. Mm -hmm. Uh, What do they need? Uh, what What would you provide for them? Because they represent tens of trillions of dollars coming to the global economy. 
-hmm. And they also represent an amazing uh, resource of innovation. So I think about that a lot. And I ask, I ask that the other question I ask is how will you disrupt yourself? So one of the most fundamental realizations is that every entrepreneur, every business, every company will get disrupted. It's a matter of time. And the rate of disruption is increasing. Um, one measure of that is Richard Foster at Yale studied companies on the S&P 500. And in the 1920s, if you started a company that got on the S&P 500, Standard & Poor's 500 companies, uh, your average lifespan was 67 years. Today, the average lifespan of a company that goes on the S&P 500 is not 67 years. It's 15 years, right? Your MySpace <laughs> is being disrupted by Facebook, by Google+, whatever's next. So disruption is going to happen. And so I, I talk, you know, I've had the honor of talking with uh, kicking off Jeff Immel, uh, the CEO of GE, his, his leadership team meeting. It's the same thing for Mutar Kent at, at Coca-Cola, chairman CEO of Coca-Cola and and for uh, for Cisco and for many companies. And I ask them, how will you disrupt yourself? And how are you trying to disrupt yourself? And if you're not, you're in for a uh, real surprise. Right. So it's almost like uh, what um, Mark Goodman, who's, who was also uh, interviewed, he was a former FBI futurist. You may have met him, in fact. But uh, well, Mark, Mark is Mark heads cybersecurity at Singularity University. Oh, that's University. right. God, it's, just small, it's such a small world. God, that's uh, but, actually how you met him. <laughs> oh well, I actually first met him. Yeah, in San Diego. I might no. I first bumped into him. You're totally right at Singularity. Yeah. And uh, but the, the concept of red teaming, sort of uh, testing your own security systems as if you were attacking your company or yep. your yep. your person and, and taking the same approach to how you would uh, yep. obsolesce your own, your own company. So, uh, and I, I, and I, I told that to CEO and say, listen, find the smartest 20 somethings in your company. Uh, I don't care if they're in the mail room or where they are, but who have, and give them permission to figure out how would they take down your company. Yeah. Which is a cool assignment too. Yeah, for twenty sure. something, <laughs> yeah. So I, I want to talk about a couple of the names that have come up. You mentioned Elon, uh, Richard Branson, Larry Page, Jeff Bezos. Uh, they all seem to have very different backgrounds. Um, what are some of the strategies that they have in common, or psychological tools, anything like that? Yeah. So uh, let me start. So I talk about Larry and Jeff and Richard and Elon in bold. I have a relationship with each of them um, as investors, business partners, board members. And uh, they represent for me extraordinary examples of people we should try and emulate. Uh, and I talk about them in detail and I actually looked at what do they have in common and basically found a number of key attributes uh, that that I think they have in common that I believe are absolutely critical um, for other entrepreneurs uh, to emulate as well. So one of the things is uh, the, the level of moonshots these people take, their willingness to dream really big and to go 10 times bigger than anybody else, not 10% bigger. And that's really important. So, so Larry Page, for example, was at the Singularity University founding conference. Now, 
Larry is uh, an investor in planetary resources. Uh, he is on my board at XPRIZE. He's a benefactor uh, and helped get Singular University started. And he stood up at the SU founding conference and he said something which, which really set the DNA of Singularity University and uh, uh, changed my mindset. He said, I have a simple measure right now for people. Are you working on something that can change the world, yes or no? And he said, 99.9999999% of the people on the planet, the answer is no. Um, and the the fact of the matter is we should be. And I think that's a really important realization uh, and something that I try and uh, and talk about and push in this book, which is we really should. Uh, the other thing is Jeff Bezos talking about experimentation uh, and that, you know, we all talk about experimentation and pivoting and so forth, but he goes on to say in detail, uh, you know, our success at Amazon is a function of the number of experiments we can do per year, per month, per week, per day. And when you do experiments, you're going to fail. And if you don't have a thick skin, you're not going to be able to succeed. So I, I talk to CEOs all the time. I say, listen, the day before something is truly a breakthrough, it's a crazy idea. And, and if it wasn't, a crazy idea, then you're not, it's not a breakthrough. It's an incremental improvement. So where inside of your companies are you trying crazy ideas? And we don't do it in the government, right? I mean, when the government tries something different and it fails, there's a congressional investigation. <laughs> and, and like, you you like no government employees ever going to do that again. Uh, and in large corporations, you're worried about your stock price plummeting. And so ultimately, it's the entrepreneurs who are trying the crazy ideas, and they're willing to fail 99 times out of 100, and that's really where the true breakthroughs come from. And maybe you can confirm or uh, or correct this, but I, I want to say that I also heard Larry Page at one point say you know, the, the, the thing that people misunderstand about really huge goals is that it's very hard to fail completely. And I feel like that was a Larry quote, but either it's, way... Uh, yeah. It's one of the – an element of that is uh, – uh, and this comes – I interview Astro Teller for the book. Uh, Astro is the head of Google X, Google Skunk Works, yeah. really a, a dear guy. friend and a great guy. And he says, you know, when you go after a moonshot, something that's 10 times bigger, not 10 percent bigger, and the, a, a number of things happen. First of all, when you're going 10 percent bigger, you're competing against everybody. Everybody's trying to go 10 yeah. percent bigger. And when you're when you're trying to go ten times bigger, you're there by yourself. You know, for me, it's like asteroid mining. I don't have a lot of asteroid mining competition <laughs> out there, or prospecting, or even human longevity. And you know, trying to add forty years in a healthy lifespan. There's not a lot of companies out there. You know, there's Calico at Google, who's a you know a collaborative company with us, not really uh, competition. Um, the second thing is when you are trying to go ten times bigger, you have to start with a clean sheet of paper. And you approach the problem completely differently. So I'll give you my favorite example. It's Tesla, right? Mm -hmm. How did Elon start Tesla and build from scratch the safest, most extraordinary car, not even in America, I think in the world? It's by not having a legacy from the past to drag into the present. Mm. And that's, that's important. And then the third thing is when you're trying to go 10 times bigger versus 10% bigger, it's typically not 100 times harder, but the reward is 100 times more. That's so, very interesting. Yeah. No, I like that. 
the, what what do you uh, how do you find people like the the folks you mentioned you know the Elons the Bransons and so on how do they and maybe I, I don't know if there's a clean answer to this but how do they compensate for their weaknesses or cover their weaknesses because uh, I mean in my experience that people with incredible strengths usually have you know they're like everything everybody else in the world they, they're kind of like Swiss cheese you know they have their holes how do they how do they still go for these moonshots while sort of uh, protecting against the fatal flaws that they might have. Now, uh, you know, I think we get to know them after they're successful. Mm -hmm. And, you know, frankly, there are probably a lot of Larry Pages and Elon Musks who almost were successful that we don't know about. Um, so I think uh, ultimately when you reach that level of success, the public sort of ignores your flaws uh, to a large degree and you know, is a, the adoring public, but they also build amazing teams that, uh, that make up for it. And then they are extraordinarily smart. These guys are brilliant. They are absolutely brilliant. And some of them are, you know, almost not human. What, what are, uh, would you say are some of the most, uh, pronounced what differences between say Elon and uh, Jeff Bezos? Uh, so um, I'm not sure you're gonna you're picking a pair that's kind of kind of close. I mean, uh, and uh, uh, so I mean, oh man, I'm I'm having a hard time comparing those two. I mean, so the, now uh, what is what is Elon's background? I actually don't know what his. So, so Elon grew up. Yeah. Elon was born in South Africa, mm -hmm. uh, moved to Canada, eventually ended up at Wharton. And one of the things that was interesting was, uh, and I write about his background in, in, in bold, but uh, he started programming at a very young age, right? Mm -hmm. he, wrote, he wrote his first video games while he was in, in high school. And he became convinced when he was at, in college that there were you know, three big important things that, that he needed to think about for humanity. And one was the internet. Uh, the next was... Uh, was energy, and the third was space. And, wow! Um, Talk about foresight, yeah. really. And, it was, and it's interesting because he uh, he ended up trying to find a job, and he's very he's so he's reasonably introverted as an individual, mm -hmm. and so uh, Larry's introverted to some degree as well. Elon is, and but when Elon warms up, he's a very social guy. He's a very he can be outgoing, but. You know, he went to try and get a job at Netscape, and he actually waited in the lobby, too scared to go up and actually try and, you know, approach them for, uh, for an interview. And he never got that interview. He never worked at Netscape. He decided Netscape back in the uh, in the early mid '90s was the most interesting company, and he ended up going and creating a company called Zip2 uh, that was uh, acquired was his first success. He went on to go and create. Uh, X.com that merged into PayPal, uh, sold that and basically uh, funded what would then become SpaceX, Tesla, and SolarCity. And, and one of the things that was is most amazing, most people don't know about Elon because he deserves all the extraordinary success he has today, is in, in 2008, all three of those companies were on the verge of bankruptcy. Uh, SpaceX had just had its third launch failure of, uh, of Falcon 1. Um, he had budgeted as smartly as should. I tried to talk Elon. I know Elon since 2000 and um, just before he had – or just as he was selling PayPal. 
And I was trying to talk him out of doing a launch field company because it was uh, such a a trail of dead bodies. And I'm so happy he didn't listen to me. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, he – in 2008, the third failure of SpaceX's launch vehicle, he had budgeted for three failures. But when it failed again, it was like, oh, my God. And then at the same time, uh, Tesla's financing had gone down the tubes. He actually went into debt to borrow money. He spent every single dollar he had to keep those companies alive and went into debt and was living in a rented apartment, rented house actually, uh, to keep it going. But then literally in the end of 2008, a number of things changed. He got a contract from NASA. Uh, some financing capital came in through Tesla, uh, and Solar City started started growing. And today, he's the father of four different billion dollar industry uh, companies in four different industries, and it's amazing. But there are principles that that he uses to think about this. And I would say one of the most important ones that all these guys have is is passion and purpose, right? And one of the quotes I love from him is, "I did not go." into the automotive business and into the space business um, because I thought it was an easy way to make money. He said, I'm not insane, right? I'm not going up the industrial, going up against the industrial military complex or Detroit. He said, I just thought these, they needed to be better quality products and they did not exist. And I felt driven by my purpose and passion to go and do these things. And, you know, he gave him a 30% chance, 40% chance of success. But ultimately, you know, he's built tens of billions of dollars in value in the last 10 years. Now, just uh, to – I love this story and it contrasts in my mind with that of Bezos, right, who came out of D.E. Shaw, had yep. the opportunity to pitch Amazon uh, to uh, the, 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 the higher-ups. The which, CEO there, yeah. Exactly, which was declined. Yep. <laughs> and uh, Jeff, at least as far as I can tell, didn't it did not – aim to start that business because he was passionate about books. It was an, a very analytical approach. Yeah, uh, exactly. He basically said, listen, the internet's happening. He's been watching the doubling rate of the internet. He's seeing this growth. He's like, oh my God, there is a tsunami coming. This thing is not stoppable. You don't see these kind of growth rates like any place else. And he said, you know, he's driving cross country from uh, East Coast uh, up to Seattle. And he's thinking about what is it that would benefit from something like a, I, he didn't call it everything store then, but what, you know, what is something that's a large number of things that the internet would allow me to actually search and find? And books was his first, uh, his first, uh, his first thought. And he actually borrows the money from his parents and starts the company, uh, in his family garage, basically. And what's, I love the story of when he put up the website, he hooks up a bell to the website. So every time a book is purchased, a bell would go off from his, from his server. And it's like, you know, they hear the first bell, like ding, like, oh, yay. You know, they mail all their friends and so forth. And then 10 minutes later, another ding. And then he talks about, you know, a few days later when the bell was like, ding, 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 ding. And they finally <laughs> shut it off because it was so annoying. It's, uh, it's, he's, he's a really fascinating guy in my mind. And, and, as far as I know, he does not have a technical, i.e., programming or computer science background, or does he? Am I am I off on that? No, no, he's uh, you know he was at Princeton, uh, and he was not uh, uh, studying uh, 
CS, I, I believe. I'm, well, I knew him from his, his college years at Princeton because when I had started, my very first organization ever was a, was a company called Students with Exploration and Development of Space, SEDS. And I, was at, I started while I was at MIT, and he started a chapter of, uh, of SEDS while he was at Princeton. And um, uh, he was, from his earliest days, a space cadet, uh, very passionate about space. And, you know, he is running a company that he's funding called Blue Origin, whose mission it is to go into space. And every time Elon and I see him, we're saying, like, dude, why are you wasting your time with Amazon, for God's sakes? Go and build your space company. We've got to get off this rock. <laughs> Jeff, baby, you got to yeah. think bigger. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I'll, I'll give you just, just one kind of uh, – I don't think I've told anybody about this. Just a funny side note about – actually, And actually, to be, to be clear, his, uh, his degree was in, in computer science. Oh, it was. Uh, yeah. At, oh, look at, at that. Uh, okay, yeah, so he did. He yeah. did have some technical yeah. jobs. I was uh, so Jeff is one of uh, you know, along with Elon and, and a few others. There aren't that many folks that uh, just in the business sphere that I'm sort of uh, longing to have a conversation with. These these are two of them, and I uh, you know I, I met Elon very briefly on on a zero G flight that that you invited me on. So thank you for that very briefly. But like you said, he's a pretty introspect uh, in, introverted guy, and I didn't want to be disruptive uh, to his experience. I had a similar uh, run in with Jeff Bezos very randomly. I was, I was staying at a hotel in Tokyo had just been reading about some of his background, walked out of the hotel and literally almost <laughs> bumped forehead first into him coming through the, the revolving door with his kids. And I walked past and I was like, holy shit, that was Jeff Bezos. <laughs> and, but he's with his kids. It was like 11 p.m. and he's trying to sort of shuttle them to the hotel room. And so I didn't introduce myself. I didn't do it. And uh, I'm not sure I regret not doing it. On one hand, I'm like, oh, God, you know, I really would have loved to have talked to him, but he was with his family and I didn't feel like it was the right thing to do. Uh, who do you, Peter, rely on to tell you when you're wrong? So you, you're a very powerful guy. You're, you're a dynamic personality. You have a strong will. Uh, it's, it's in some cases easy to end up with people sort of politely nodding with yeah. whatever suggestions you might, you might have or, 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 or ideas you might have. Who do you, who do you rely on to, to correct you or to point out flaws in your thinking? Well, I mean, I, I will say that there's no shortage of people who will do that. <laughs> uh, but I, I think it's my business partners. I mean, I have every company I've started. Uh, I have uh, business partners, uh, individuals I work with to build the company. And, you know, I, I'm very clear that when I'm doing that with somebody, um, you know, it's Eric Anderson with Planetary Resources and Space Adventures. Uh, uh, it's Craig Venter and Bob Hurry with with Human Longevity Inc. It's you know Rob Nail, Ray Kurzweil at Singularity University. And there's no question we have a lot of debate and deliberation, and uh, don't always agree. Um, and uh, uh, you know, the challenge is that if you listen to people, uh, it's really tough to. Uh, to actually be revolutionary because, mm. you know, the majority of people will take you back to the mean and that's just the wrong place to be. At some point, you've got to say, I fundamentally believe this is the right thing to do and then go off and, and give it a try. 
There's a great quote. Um, I just want to read this to you. I, I saw this the other day. And this comes from uh, Scott uh, Belsky, who is a founder of, of Beans, and it says, when 99% of the people doubt your ideas, you're either gravely wrong or about to make history. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, me yeah, too. That's very good. Yeah, it's um, – you know, I always think uh, – well, there are two things that come to mind, of course, and uh, these are sort of my constant companions in my head when I'm trying to – make difficult decisions about experimentation, usually in my case. Uh, the first is a quote from Mark Twain, which is, uh, start a lot of my presentations this way, which is, uh, whenever you find yourself on the side of the majority, it's time to pause and reflect, which is yeah. quite along the, the, the lines of being sort of reverted to the mean and trying to avoid that. The, the second is the story of um, uh, Dick Fosbury, who was the first high jumper uh, to go over the high jump bar with a back bend backwards. And so there mm. was sort of a scissor step and different approaches up to that point. And two things allowed him to do that. Secondly, was just questioning the assumptions and best practices of his sport. The second was they changed it. They changed the landing material. So people, they, they, it had previously been some type of like hard packed hay or straw, which was very unforgiving. And it was, it was changed tech, you know, the technology evolved to a softer surface, but people didn't change their technique. <laughs> and so he, <laughs> he, he went over backwards and he was ridiculed and laughed at until he won the gold medal. And now of course, everyone yeah. uses that technique. Um, so I want, I want to talk about a few other things that you're very familiar with, um, namely crowdfunding and, uh, incentive competitions, uh, because these, these are, these have really come to the forefront in a lot of ways in the last few years, and I think that's that's going to continue to be the case. I've had some very challenging experiences with uh, publishing and uh, television, for instance. And uh, as crowdfunding, Kickstarter, and other Indiegogo and other platforms have grown, I've realized that with the audience I've built, uh, I could self-fund these previously uh, – inconceivable projects, uh, whether it be TV or feature film. And th that's very exciting to me, but I think I'm still thinking too small. I mean, that's exciting. It's, it's, it would be a big project. I think that there's, there's, there's a lot that could be done there creatively, but what is the, what do you think the future of crowd, uh, of crowdfunding and incentive competitions? Sure. Looks like? uh, let's, take, let's take those each at a time. So I'm a, a huge fan of both, obviously. Um, on the crowdfunding side, the numbers are are pretty spectacular. So it's it's projected that in this year, 2015, there will be 15 billion dollars of crowdfunding. Um, That's incredible. Yeah, it is. It is. I mean, here's a brand new source, effectively, of capital for the entrepreneur, for the person with a vision who wants to create a product, a service, whatever it might be. But that number becomes 100 billion dollars by 2020, and so uh, it's a sizable amount of capital. Uh, and I've run two crowdfunding campaigns, uh, one for about one and a half million dollars for planetary resources and one uh, that was on Kickstarter and the other one was on Indiegogo for XPRIZE for about about just shy of a million dollars for our global learning XPRIZE. And, you know, I fundamentally believe it's something that every entrepreneur should be experimenting with. I mean, there's very little downside and there, great. Uh, you know, not to interrupt you, Peter. I'm very sorry, yeah. but this is you know. such an important point that, and it reminds me of a Branson quote actually, which is, uh, you know, he he's always capping the downside and deciding what the downside is before 
different yep. different business experiments or launches. And uh, you know, people think of Virgin Air as this huge risk, but he had such an incredible. I think it was leasing arrangement with Boeing or something that there yeah, was, he had there, the he had the ability to return his seven forty seven a year later. Uh, if the airline wasn't working. So it was zero downside for him to try a Virgin Atlantic. Right. So it's just such an important important checkbox. So I, I, I do want to interrupt the flow, but it's just so important. I wanted to underscore it for folks. So, right. With the crowdfunding, there's very little downside. So, I mean, uh, you can build a crowdfunding. So, in fact, I know a lot of venture capitalists who will only back companies who are doing product development if they have tried crowdfunding first. Because... You know, you can have and you can have the assumption that man, this widget is amazing, right? And in black, it looks great, and it may not be the fact that anybody gives a shit about your widget, um, or they want it in red. And crowdfunding not only allows you to get the money in advance, but it allows you to have the most honest vote ever of whether the world wants your product or service, your book, your movie, your your digital watch, whatever it might be. Uh, and then you get to find out not only does the world want it, but in fact, um, what color, what size, what shape. And it's the most honest vote you can, right? Who cares what a monkey survey says? It's when people put their credit card down and, and buy, vote with their wallet, that's what really matters. Right. No, absolutely. The... So I, I actually, you know, one of the things I did was uh, was spend time studying it. I, I went out and interviewed the you know, the guys who did the top crowdfunding campaigns in the world um, and how did they do it? And then I used that in my own and, and I have a whole chapter on crowdfunding and it's labeled No Bucks, No Buck Rogers on the, on the how-to. And it's just, it is very, very doable. I mean, not all things should be crowdfunded, but those that should, that that can be, I really think it's the new way of an entrepreneur starting a, a business. It's zero dilution, you test your marketplace, you get out in front, and importantly, you build a community. And you know, Tim, better than anybody how important a community is. A community can, can make you or break you. Absolutely. And it's, it's also just such a good litmus test, not only for investors, but to prove to yourself whether or not you have the, the, the diligence, the wherewithal, uh, the responsiveness to execute a business. If you can't execute a crowdfunding campaign, you might want to... <laughs> <laughs> time out yeah. and consider a different career path uh, because that's that's a low hurdle compared to many of the challenges that come later. Um, I want to ask you a couple questions before we move to the incentive competitions. Sure. Um, and I'd also say to people, uh, of, of course, I'm going to include tons of links in the show notes uh, to uh, everything that uh, that Peter's talking about. There's also a uh, how to hack Kickstarter. Um, case study that uh, is on the blog for people who are interested uh, so they can search that that has template emails and things like that the are you an early riser what time do you typically get up in the morning i have three-year-olds um so <laughs> so i take that that's a, that's a yes uh, yeah so it's whatever time they get me up so yeah it's typically six thirty, uh you know pacific time so yeah that's dinner time in europe but uh, <laughs> uh so that's yeah what are sleep yeah, go ahead. Sleep is optional. Yeah, <laughs> unfortunately. What uh, what morning routines do you have or have you had that uh, you've used consistently? Um, it's probably stretching. It's uh, and it's a sort of a mindset uh, that 
my purpose and mission in life that I took away actually from Tony Robbins' Date with Destiny, which is a program I uh, is a week long, is the most transformative uh, program I've been to, and anybody who's not been to Date with Destiny. So it's like um, I, I repeat my purpose in life, and I also repeat uh, my the mindset I want to have for the day, and I do that in the shower. Uh, and then I'll go through and, uh, and do a quick scan of my emails and I'll go play with my kids right now for the first hour. So the stretching is in the shower or it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's stretching is in the shower. What type of stretching? Uh, it's mostly, uh, it's mostly my lower body and, and then I'll go through a, a breathing exercise as well. And it's, uh, the self, you know, the affirmational, uh, mantra, if you would, is an important part of that. What type of, what is the breathing exercise? Uh, it's uh, an accelerated deep breathing uh, just to oxygenate and to stretch my lungs. Uh, it's interesting because one of the, uh, one of the, there are two elements that, that tie very much to human longevity. It's strange, and I wonder how they're linked. But one is those people who floss and those people who have uh, a higher v, uh, uh, VO2 max. Really? Uh, higher yeah. VO2 max is correlated with longer lifespan? Uh, yes, yes, absolutely. That's very curious. Yeah. So, uh, so are you taking measures to try to improve your VO2 max? Uh, in part, but um, uh, we can talk about that another time. <laughs> okay, that'll be part three. Uh, got it. All right. Um, we're going to come to the incentive competitions in a second, but what do you look for in friends? What are the qualities or the, or the criteria that you use for friends these days? You know, for me, it is it is passion uh, and curiosity uh, uh, and purpose. You know, the realization is, and I, I I believe this: the quality of your life is a function of who you go through life with. Definitely, right? And so you've heard the stat, perhaps, and you're and everybody listening that you're you're the average of the five people you hang out with most. And uh, so I'm looking for people who are going to up my game, who I love spending time with, who make me feel great, who make me feel happy, uh, who are not yes men or women, uh, who are um, who I can dream with. Mm -hmm. That's really important. Have you had to break up with certain friends or associates? I, I think over it's the not. Years? Been it's not been dr dramatic, but a drift away from just spend less time with. And there are people who are just self-defeatist, right? They're brilliant, they're smart, they're hardworking, but they just completely defeat themselves and they're negative in their mindsets. And they're like, like, woe is me. And it's like, dude, I just, please, you know, I will, I will do my best as a friend to give them uh, the skills to think about that differently. But this goes back to Brian Johnson, who we spoke to about to about earlier. You know, it's all about your operating system, mm -hmm. and the challenge is as humans, if you think about it, our brains are the sort of computer structure, the wiring diagram of our brains, and the wiring diagram of a computer are, are somewhat similar. They're they're pretty much fixed by biology, and then you've got the next layer is for a brain, it, for a computer, it's its operating system. Right, and then for the for us as humans, we have an operating system that comes online between birth and typically age of five to seven. We make things mean certain things, and then on top of that operating system of a human, we have apps like like math is an app, 
uh, algebra, geography, if you learn Spanish, if you learn history, all of these things are apps that you build on top of your operating system. But very few times do we as humans ever go and look at our operating system. We constantly look at our apps. So I've got to learn how to code. I've got to learn how to do that. Those are all apps. But when do you actually go and look at your operating system as a human? And there are very few things that actually allow us to do that. And the two that I found is the work that Tony does, Tony Robbins with like Date, and Dest- Date with Destiny. The other one is, is, um, is Landmark, Landmark Education, Landmark Forum. Are you, have you ever done that, Tim? I haven't done it. I've, uh, I have friends who have uh, been involved with Landmark Forum, but uh, I don't know very much about it. What, uh, how, do, how does Landmark differ from what Tony does? It's, it's similar, and it's a different approach, and you know it's two and a half days. I don't want to go into the detail. I just offer those as two resources. But how often do any of us go back and realize, why do I think that way? Why do I react that way to this? Or why do I have this pessimistic mindset or this reactive or this self-defeatist mindset? And when I was going back to you know the, my friends who I've sort of parted ways with over the years, and uh, – it's the reason that when you were growing up, you made certain things mean certain things to you and you react that way to it. And that's part of your operating system. Unless you change it, you're going to be constantly falling into those same patterns over and over and over again. And I've got them. We've all got them. But if you can become aware of it, you can at least take control of it. So I'm looking for friends who help me up my game. I enjoy spending time with um, who make me you know, ask those questions like Brian Johnson did of you uh, and – who I can dream big dreams with. So speaking of dreaming big dreams, I think this is a good segue to incentive competitions because I fantasize, I think a lot about this, but my thinking is undirected. <laughs> the XPRIZE has has sparked my curiosity about incentive uh, competitions and what I might do in the world using incentive competitions. Um, but maybe you could explain what that means, first of all. Sure. Sure, and then we'll come back and ask you, what's the Tim Ferriss X Prize? Um, so, again, I went back and I mentioned the X Prize Foundation in that, uh, you know, I wanted to travel in space since I was a child. Uh, expected NASA was going to get me there, you know, uh, got a medical degree, got my pilot's license, drank all the tang I could get my hands on. Uh, <laughs> and, then, and then after a while, I realized my chances of becoming a NASA astronaut were like one in 5,000. And in fact, it wasn't NASA's job to get the public into space. And I was like, you know, screw that. I'm going to get there independent of, of NASA. And then read that Lindbergh in 1927 crossed the Atlantic to win a prize and said, okay, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to create a prize for the first team who could build a private spaceship that could carry me and my friends into space. Long story short, uh, uh, announced that prize under the arch in St. Louis in 1996, did not have the $10 million, didn't stop me. Um, and I teach in the, in bold, how do you give, how do you give birth to an, a, a big, bold idea above the line of super credibility? And I'd love to come back. To that. I think it's an important lesson for everybody to learn. Super credibility. And, super credibility. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, and announced the prize took me five years to find the Ansari family who put up the $10 million and that $10 million drove 26 teams around the world to spend a hundred million dollars trying to win this $10 million prize. By building and flying a spaceship that could carry three adults up into space 100 kilometers, land, and do it again within two weeks. So the prize was won on October 4th, 2004 by Bert Rutan and Paul Allen, um, and it changed the regulations. Uh, 
Google changed the Google Doodle that day to have Spaceship One flying over the logo. I got invited up to the Googleplex to talk about XPRIZE. That's where I met Larry Page, invited him onto my board. He agreed on the spot. And now we're working on launching prizes, incentive prizes for the world's biggest problems. What's a problem that should be solved that hasn't been? And and we think about that, and we launch two or three major prizes a year. Um, And uh, and I fundamentally believe that there is no problem we cannot solve, that the technologies that allow you and me and everyone listening to – to do things are the technologies that were resident only with government and large corporations 20 years ago. You know, access to you know tens of billions of crowdfunding. It's an amazing time to be an entrepreneur, and the number of people solving problems is also exploding. So that gives me the greatest hope for the future. So we're constantly sourcing prize ideas. I'll also mention just for fun, um, and I talk about uh, about this in, in the book that. We created and spun out a platform from XPRIZE called HeroX, you can, you know, HeroX.com, and you can, where you can go and actually create, you know, have the crowd help you design a prize, fund a prize, and solve a prize. So I want to go – one of my mantras is stop complaining about problems, go solve them. And that's, I think, the world we're living in today. You can stop complaining. You can start solving. So, so one of those problems I'd love to ask you about, and then I'd, I'd love to come back to the super credibility. Uh, sure. I like the sound of that. <laughs> the uh, in, And that is related to, to climate change. So I think uh, I've spoken with a number of uh, climate scientists who are terrified that some people will embrace a sort of techno-optimism that is uh, too long-term and in the meantime, you know the, the the planet will boil in the next thirty years or whatnot. Um, what uh, what is being done, or how would you suggest people think about climate change and and addressing the sure. problems of that? So, uh, a couple of thoughts. Um, one is that as humans, we typically see the problem way before it hits us. You know, we're really great at identifying problems because it was an evolutionary advantage to be able to see the problem way out in the future. And typically, by the time the problem hits us, you know, there's been tremendous progress and we now have a whole new set of tools for addressing it. Um, one example I write about in my last book, Abundance, was that in the 1890s, one of the biggest environmental problems, the, the equivalent of climate change, was horse manure. As people were moving out of the out of the countries into the cities, they were bringing their motive force with them, the horse. And the number of horses and the amount of horseshit was building <laughs> exponentially. And they had, you know, literally uh, would have um, a corner lot uh, that was where all the horseshit got shoveled. And, when it, and it, when, it would, when it would rain, there was so much manure flowing down the streets that buildings were designed with a raised stoop. So you could step over the flowing manure and the disease was building and the articles written projected, you know, this crazy amount of horse manure because clearly, you know, by 1940, the number of horses in the city would have exploded as the population went up. But something else happened, right? Another technology came along called the automobile that became the major mode of force and got rid of horses. Mm -hmm. So the question is, what's the example here? 
And uh, so we're working on two X prizes right now to change the game. One is a battery X prize, uh, and that is to increase the energy density by 300%. Can we go from your typical lithium ion, you know, at 250 watt hours per kilogram up to five, six, 700 watt hours per kilogram? That would change everything, right? You would fundamentally only have electric cars. You'd have electric airplanes. You'd have electric everything. Um, and I want to remind everybody that there is 5,000 times more energy from the sun that hits the surface of the earth than we consume as a species in a year. It's, it's not that energy is not abundant. It's just not yet in a usable form. <clears throat> but if you look at the numbers, the amount of, of solar cells we're manufacturing is on an exponential growth curve. It's doubling uh, every uh, 30 months or so. And then the cost is plummeting as an exponential. And if you're buying a new copy of Abundance in the back of the book, uh, since the hard copy, the soft copy now is a whole new set of charts, including that, those, those curves. The other XPRIZE we're working on is a carbon capture XPRIZE. Can you capture 80% of the carbon coming out of a, a natural gas or coal smokestack uh, and turn it into a usable um, product that is worth more than the cost of capturing it so that it becomes a profit center for these facilities? Uh, and I'll mention one other thing if I could, Tim, and because people don't want to talk about this, but I don't, I don't see it. Let's say we're too late. Let's say, you know, um, you know, we have hit a critical turning point. I mean, we do have the technology to launch into space a, what would be from the earth, a postage size, uh, shutter, if you would, that could titrate the amount of solar flux hitting the earth very easily. This is not a complex structure. Could you explain that one more time, please? Well, so imagine if you would, uh, a certain amount of energy hits the earth mm -hmm. every day. Imagine if you could block out a tenth of 1% of that energy by putting up a structure at a Lagrange point in the Earth-Sun system um, that would just block a small amount. And you could, you could, you could actually, like a shutter would, you could use an aperture of some type to, uh, and to you know turn it sideways and you know start very slowly and increase it. You could, in fact, reduce the amount of energy coming to the Earth's surface, and you could measure it and change it on a on a minute by minute basis. So, I mean, there are ways to do this that are fully reversible and can be measured very carefully. It's very different from you know, throwing iron filings into the ocean and changing CO2 absorption. I mean, there are things we can do. I've had, you know, this conversation with Al Gore and Al's like, no, we're going to screw it up even worse. Listen, the fact of the matter is, um, there, you know, we are a smart species. And while uh, we should be trying to reduce CO2 and going to an electric and solar economy, if we're screwed, I don't want to sit here and boil. I'd like to take some actions to, re to reduce that, please. Right. And there are actions we can take. I love this. No, that's I, I learn something interesting every time I chat with you, which is part of the reason why I like to harass you so much. The uh, and, and you you mentioned the if we're screwed anyway, and it, it reminded me. God, I wish I could remember the attribution of this quote, but it was something along the lines of um, you know the, the person who says we're screwed or there's nothing we can do, and the person who says everything is fine are the same because nothing gets done in either case, and. <laughs> Uh, and I've always, I've always remembered that. Uh, I wanted to come back to super credibility because uh, yeah. it's catchy, 
Turn so phrase, I, of course, but what does that refer to? Yeah, so I talk about this in bold, and I talk about this a lot because it's something that I think is really important for every entrepreneur to learn this. And uh, so I want to set the setting. It's it's May 18th of 1996. Um, a few months earlier, I had ra- I was raising money for the X Prize. I was trying to raise ten million dollars. I'm in St. Louis. I'm trying to raise ten million dollars, twenty five thousand dollars at a time. And I very quickly, you know, raised about a, a half a million dollars from amazing people like John McDonald and, and Andy Taylor and uh, uh, the Danforth family, some incredible uh, city leaders in, in St. Louis, uh, a guy named Al Kurth, who was a patron saint. He's passed away since, but was helping me and taking me around. Um, and we reached a, a, a threshold. I raised half a million dollars and it wasn't – we were stuck and made a decision that we were going to announce the $10 million prize anyway, even though we didn't have the money. And it's kind of ballsy. I had three of my board members resign on the spot when we decided to do that. And I realized that how the world learned about the X Prize really mattered. And so it turns out that each of us in our minds have this line of credibility. And if I tell you if I announce something to you below the line of credibility, you dismiss it out of hand. It's like, you know, if I said this t- teenager next door is going to build a spaceship and fly to Mars, it's like, he's a nut, forget it. And then there's this line of credibility. If you announce a project above the line of credibility, then, you know, maybe they'll do it. So if, you know, if maybe I announced I'm planning to build a spaceship and go to Mars, Maybe think people say, ah, interesting. Let's watch and see what Peter does. And depending on my actions, uh, you know, they'll either dismiss it a few days, months, or years later, or they'll increase in credibility. <clears throat> and then there, we all have this line of super credibility in our minds that if you announce something above the line of super credibility, it's like, oh my God, that's amazing. When is it going to happen? And so if I said to you, you know, listen, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson, Larry Page have all just partnered and they are building a private uh, mission to Mars. It's like, oh, my God, that's amazing. Finally. Right. Right. So I'm in May of 1996. I have half a million dollars. I decide to spend all of it on this launch event. And we do it under the arch in St. Louis on the dais. I don't have one astronaut. I've got 20 astronauts standing on stage with me. I've got the head of NASA, the head of the FAA, and the Lindbergh family with me on stage announcing this $10 million prize. Um, Did I have any money? No. Did I have any teams registered to compete? No. But around the world, it was front page news. This $10 million prize is going in. And it was, for me, a huge risk. Uh, but you know, I didn't lie about it and tell them they just all assumed I had the $10 million, but I wanted to give birth to this above the line of super credibility. Cause I was so sure that it was going to be pretty easy. You know, who wouldn't want to pay the $10 million after it was award after someone pulled it off. I just didn't expect to have 150 people tell me no. And, uh, uh, it just, anyway, took who, five years to raise capital. Who was, who was the hardest person to convince to be on that? stage with you? Oh, the head of NASA for sure. What was the pitch? How did you convince them? Well, I mean, the pitch was, listen, uh, wouldn't you want entrepreneurs around the world to be 
working on new technologies so that this is off your balance sheet. And the big, you know, it turns out that 20,000 employees, whatever number of employees at NASA, all of them are all there because they want to go too. And right. uh, and it was actually um, a friend, Alan Ladwig, who was the uh, the associate administrator at NASA, who I'd known for 20 years, who convinced Dan Golden to take the risk. Uh, and then the astronauts who were there. And you build credibility like that by, you know, first getting Byron Lichtenberg. Byron was one of the early co-founders of XPRIZE, and and he convinced Buzz Aldrin and, and other shuttle astronauts. And we got 20 astronauts on stage, right, one at a time. And then got the associate administrator of the FAA, and said, like, Dan, we've got the FAA, we've got 20 astronauts. You know, you build safety in numbers in that regard. Definitely. And so it, it's a step-by-step process, but... You know, ultimately, that's how, you know, anyone who knows the story of Stone Soup, do you know Stone Soup, Tim? I don't think I do. Oh, my God. One of my favorite stories. It's a child story, a children's story that is the best MBA degree you can you can read. So uh, I write about Stone Soup. I won't give it away. It's one of the most important stories between super credibility and Stone Soup. It's like, dude, if you're an entrepreneur in college or 60 years old building your 20th company, Stone soup is so critically important. <laughs> have you, have you, and uh, we'll we'll wrap up in just a couple of minutes. Have you had a point in your life where you were pessimistic for more than a short period of time, where you were really uh, kind of oh, fat- yeah. fatalistic? Yeah, I mean, uh, of course, we all we all hit brick walls, right? So in in April two thousand one, along with every other dot comer, I was running a company called Blastoff. Uh, for Idea Lab, the incubator that had given us eToys and NetZero and GoTo and all of it. It started 40 companies. Bill Gross, a uh, brilliant guy, had just raised a billion dollars in cash in 99 from, wow. uh, uh, to, for, for, his, for his internet incubator. And he calls me up and he says, Peter, I raised a billion dollars in cash. I want to do a moon mission. I want to do a private robotic moon mission. So I sold my house in a day. I moved to Pasadena from Washington, D.C., have an amazing team of people, um, and we are building a robotic private mission to the moon. It's since that mission became the Google Lunar X Prize, which exists today. And uh, we were we had built uh, prototypes. We had bought an Athena two launch vehicle from Lockheed Martin, a Star thirty seven translunar injection engine from Morton Thiokol, and we're we're building this thing. And then, you know, the nasdaq tanks and we get shut down and of course like many other people like oh this sucks man i mean i was so close so close to getting us there and uh you know went into a uh a long deserved depression for you know a day or two and then came out of it and started reworking on x prize and zero g and just refocused but for me my passion my guiding star is you know all of my life has been opening up the space frontier. And today that guiding star is also, you know, solving grand challenges. So whenever I get bummed or pissed off, I refocus on that guiding star and it re-energizes me. If you've got your passion, it's the number one thing as, as you know, Tim, and I've talked about, if you have that passion, it is a, it is a bottomless pit of enthusiasm and energy. To get out of the, the, that two day funk, what, uh, what is the self-talk? look like i mean what is or what is the the self ritual that you use 
in all honesty, it was probably more like two weeks than two days, uh, uh, is, is a going back to why do I believe this is important? And, uh, and it's look how far I've taken it so far. And it, you know, it's a matter of reminding yourself why, what your purpose on life is, right? Uh, what you're, what you're here for. Uh, and if you haven't connected with what your purpose and mission in life is, that's the, you know, forget anything I've said. That is the number one thing you need to do is find out what you need to be doing on this planet, why you were put here and, and what wakes you up in the morning and says, yes, I am psyched. This is, this is going to happen. Right. Um, how do you suggest people try to identify yeah. that or do they think two yeah. things? I, I'm, I'm, I'm clear about this. Uh, the one thing is what did you want to do when you were a child? Right before anybody told you what you were supposed to do, what was it you wanted to? I don't care if you were, you know, wanted to play video games. Right, my friend Richard Garriott, dear friend, um, X Prize uh, trustee, Space Adventures board member, investor in my companies. Richard's dad was a, a Skylab and shuttle astronaut, and Richard never went to college. Right, he was a video game gamer in high school. And basically, you know, your dad's a PhD astronaut, you know, the most button down math science geek on the planet. And you're like playing video games. Uh, but he became so enamored with video games and started writing them. He netted, you know, $100 million building video games and bought a ticket to go to the space station <laughs> and became the first second generation astronaut because of his video game addiction. So it's like you can make a career out of anything these days. So what are you passionate about as a kid, right? That's the first thing. The second thing is if if Peter Diamandis or Tim Ferriss gave you a billion dollars, how would you spend it besides the parties and, and the you know the Ferraris and so on? If I had to say to you, I want you to this billion dollars to go and improve the world, to go solve a problem, what would you go do with it? Um, that targeting information, what you do with it is a great place to go look at what your passion is. That's a fantastic question. You know, I've, I've heard it phrased, you know, if you had a billion dollars, how would you spend your time? But in, in a, in a way, uh, that, that those are, those are really well paired. Um, I like that. Yeah. It's a very good question. So la last question for you, Peter, uh, if you could offer your younger self one piece of advice, let's just say your 20 year old self, what would it be? Oh man. You know, I spent four years in medical school to make my mom happy, my dad happy because I thought I had to do it. Um, and, and it would have been to really believe in my inner dream of, uh, of opening up space and to go and focus on doing that. Now, listen, the medical degree and stuff is all great and maybe human longevity, which I hope will be my first, uh, you know, multi hundred billion dollar company in success, uh, maybe comes out of my medical stuff, but it, I wasn't doing it for the right reason. Um, uh, and, uh, I guess the second thing would have been, um, to have bought, uh, Amazon and Google stock earlier. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, Peter, you know, if, if I could have asked one person to write one particular book, it would have been the perfectly titled bold. And I did not say that lightly. Uh, I really feel like, um, there's so much potential out there in the world and so much opportunity. And part of the reason that I've been opting out of a lot of the startup stuff recently, to be honest, is because I'm getting pitched so many incremental 
derivative 10% improvements from people who have, they have the capability to do something exponential if they would only have that 10x type of target. And so I really hope that this book provides people with not only the inspiration, but the tools and the framework for, for going out and trying to put a huge dent in the universe. And, um, certainly, uh, I'm going to put links to, to everything at four uh, hourworkweek.com all spelled out four hourworkweek.com forward slash bold. Uh, but where can, uh, where can people give you their feedback or find you online otherwise? Sure. I mean, uh, very easily, if you go to boldbook.com, uh, is information about the book. Uh, it's a chance to build a, uh, connection with me. I've actually, uh, we're in a pre-launch phase for the book. So if you actually order a copy of the book through there, you'll get a, a few additional bonuses. You get a, a digital copy of Abundance. If you haven't read Abundance, please do or give it to your friend. Um, you get a chance to participate in an hour-long webinar with myself and my co-author, Stephen Kotler, which we'll be doing in March. So you can get a chance to read the book. You get an audio download of the first chapter. Uh, I've also done a number of training videos about uh, the six D's of exponentials, the sort of exponential stages and how uh, they allow you to sort of see into the future. I talk more about uh, uh, billionaire thinking at scale and, and finding your massively transformative purposes. So those are three free um, video downloads you get a chance to uh, to get if you go to that, that website. Ultimately, I mean, part of my mission, Tim, and, and you know this, is it's it comes back to what Larry Page said, you know, that 99.9999% of the people are not working on something that can change the world. And uh, I want to inspire through Singularity University, through XPRIZE, through BOLD, through all of these things, people to realize that today you can do more than ever before. Uh, you've got the technology, access to capital, access to mindset, access to resources, experts. Um, so I'm trying to take the shackles off of people's dreaming abilities and to uh, to give them some tools to go and do big things because that's the only way we create a world of abundance. That's the only way we really create this vibrant future that is before us. And so I'm excited about that mission. I agree. You're here. Uh, two two quick questions. How uh, the bonuses that you mentioned, and I will I will link to those in the show notes, guys. Uh, how long are those available? Until what date? Uh, they're available. The book goes on the uh, for sale on um, Amazon and Barnes and Noble uh, when the book comes out on February third. This uh, these bonus offers are on the table through February sixth, and then I'll probably you know change the bonuses some uh, somewhat. But you know ultimately, um, it's about for me. It's I want people to think differently about what they can do. So these anyway through uh, through early February for these bonuses and uh, the videos will be there for uh, uh, the training videos will be there for probably through March. Wonderful. And uh, can people find you on Twitter, or Facebook? Do you use any of yep. those? I, I I'm tweeting uh, all the time, uh, so it's just at Peter Diamandis, uh, first name, last name, uh, and uh, uh, that's uh, that's probably the the best way to follow my work. Perfect. Uh, well, Peter, it's always a pleasure. Uh, I hope we get a chance to uh, have some wine or hang out in person again soon. And uh, thanks so much for, for making the time. 
Dude, thank you. I love I love who you are and what you do. And thank you, everybody, for for being part of this conversation. It is the most exciting time ever to be alive, for sure, period, and stop. 